This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 172nd edition of the program. Today is December 13th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which signed up just this last week to support us, and that includes Kara Greenberg, Christy Klein, otherwise known as at right on Mom on Twitter, Lim TT, Nathan Earl, and Virginia Blaisdell. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support us on either Patreon or PayPal, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, Fox News decided to attack Bernie Sanders for flying in airplanes. I'm not kidding about that. They also lobbed another vicious attack against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for seemingly no reason at all. Additionally, we'll continue our coverage of Fox News' coverage of the supposed war on Christmas, and when it comes to DC politics, Trump has been implicated in a federal crime, and Kevin McCarthy's defense of him was problematic because he inadvertently managed to throw everyone else under a bus. And speaking of Donald Trump, he had a meeting with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, and Needless to say, it got weird pretty quickly. Also on this episode, the DNC is mandating neutrality from DNC officials ahead of 2020 in order to regain the trust of progressives, and there's going to be a battle between corporate Democrats and progressives when it comes to the issue of Medicare for All. So all of these topics and more will be discussed on today's show. Let's uh, go ahead and get into it. I hope you guys enjoy the program. Those of you watching this video already probably know that Bernie Sanders has a robust plan to take on climate change by instituting a Green New Deal. He's also been talking about climate change a lot more recently in hopes of elevating this issue and getting Americans to pay attention to it, I don't know, given the threat that it poses to our species. And rather than educating the American people on this issue as well and doing their jobs, can you guess what Fox News decided to do, given that Bernie has been dedicating so much time to climate change as of late? Well, they decided to attack him. And what they're doing is essentially a variant of the meme that we've seen before, that you are not allowed to criticize society if you participate in society. Because what they're saying is that he's not really serious about climate change because he flies in airplanes. And... I wish that I could tell you I was embellishing and making this up and that that wasn't really their argument and I'm strawmanning them, but that's literally their line of attack. Bernie Sanders isn't so green because he flies in airplanes. Senator Bernie Sanders won't stop talking about climate change. Donald Trump spoke last night, but somehow he forgot to mention the words climate change. What an outrage. Climate change is causing devastating problems in our country and the world. The future of the planet is at stake. Climate change is directly related to the growth of terrorism. Okay, uh, turns out Sanders is so concerned about climate change that he spent nearly 
$300,000 in nine days flying around on private jets. Here with Reaction, Mark Morano. He is the executive director of ClimateDepot.com and the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change. Mark, I thought private jets contributed to climate change. Yeah, according to Greenpeace, they're 10 times worse than train travel. In the most significant quote that Bernie Sanders has given, I think it was during the 2016 campaign, right. he doesn't take money from fossil fuel companies because they're destroying the planet. No, he doesn't take money from them, but he pays them. And, and actually, if you go back to 2016, it was in excess of $1 million that he paid for his private jets through, through the 2016 campaign. This latest figure was just helping other candidates during the midterms in 2018. So he has a long history of paying fossil fuel companies to fly him around right. in a private jet. He loves fossil fuels. Ha! Got him! He's not just flying around the country in airplanes because, you know, that is what he has to do if he wants to help elect people that will fight for climate change. He loves fossil fuels. He, he loves fossil fuels. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, what these people who are propagating propaganda, what they don't get is that if you want your propaganda to stick, and be more effective, you probably should make it more reasonable because when we come out and expose the propaganda that you're spewing, it makes our jobs easier because people see that you're full of shit if you're saying things like that. Oh, he loves fossil fuels. Now, it's not just Bernie Sanders because in the same clip, they went on to attack other people, other celebrities, other advocates who are fighting for climate change for doing the same thing for flying in airplanes. They uh, attacked Leonardo DiCaprio because he uh, participated in a documentary. I think he narrated over a documentary about climate change. They attacked Al Gore because, of course, Al Gore has been a target because he's one of the main people who has brought light to this issue. And that's essentially what this entire segment was about. If you care about climate change but simultaneously participate in society, then you don't actually care about climate change. Now, what this dingbat doesn't realize is that he's not making an argument. All he's doing is distracting from the conversation that we should be having. Climate change is happening, and we should do something about it. That's the conversation that we should be having, what we're going to do. But let's talk about how shady this individual really is, because as he tries to smear Bernie Sanders and climate change activists, this person is pretty shady himself. So he runs a website that appears to not have been updated since 1996 and which may or may not make your computer susceptible to malware. And Media Matters once named him the climate change misinformer of the year in 2012 because all he does is push propaganda with regard to climate change. And furthermore, it's not just like he pushes propaganda on his shitty little website. He actually went so far as to dox climate scientists by releasing their private information like email addresses, which he still defends till this very day, mind you. He says that doxing climate scientists is necessary because they, in doing climate science, should take into consideration what the public says about climate change. That's not how science works. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. But that's the justification he gives for doxing climate scientists. So it's not just that he's a climate-denying extremist. 
He's an objectively shitty human being, and by saying Bernie Sanders must be a hypocrite because he flies in airplanes, I mean, all that is is projection because he doesn't have an argument and his goal is simply to smear and discredit. But what makes his argument even more moronic is that if you want to get people elected, if you want to go to nine different states to elect nine different progressives, presumably all of which are in favor of fighting climate change, you have no choice. You can't take a train to get to nine different states in nine different days. You've got to fly. Furthermore, individual actions aren't enough to mitigate climate change because just 100 companies are responsible for 71% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. So even if every single person on the planet became carbon neutral, that still wouldn't be enough, which is why governments are needed take on climate change. It's not an issue that individuals are equipped to deal with or even capable of dealing with if we all wanted to, if we had the will to do so. So obviously, yes, it is perfectly reasonable to care about and advocate for climate change and fly in airplanes. You can also critique capitalism and participate in capitalism because these are things that are inextricably linked to society. Capitalism is just a part of American society. It's embedded in American society. So the same argument they make against criticisms of capitalism, they're applying that here to climate change. Well, if you produce any carbon footprint whatsoever, no matter how small, you're a hypocrite. No, that's just, that's factually incorrect, and it's a disingenuous argument to use, and it's an argument that fucker Carlson, I mean, Tucker Carlson made when talking about climate change in a conversation with Namiki Konst, and he used the same argument used by Steve Ducey and this moron here against Bernie Sanders. But thankfully, she combated his bullshit with facts, and he didn't like it very much. If you really believe what you're saying, and if Bernie Sanders really believes what he's saying, why is he flying on private planes? I mean, I'm, it's a sincere question. Ha! Got him! So let's not get distracted from the real issue here. Oh, what oh, no, the no, real no, issue? No, no. I'm not going to no, 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 stop, stop, stop. I'm not going to let you off that easily. Why is it not yeah. a real issue? If climate change, as mm -hmm. Katie Church has told us, is really the Church. only issue that matters, then why aren't we living like it's the only issue that matters? Because it really understand. comes down to the industry. If the industry wants to make planes that exist off of renewable energy rather than than oil and gas then we will all be able to live on this planet it starts at the industry level not the consumer you know okay, it's really so, not so fair the to put the tax on the oh, individual it's not it's not fair for yeah. someone who's telling us the planet's being destroyed to live in a way that suggests that he actually believes the planet's being destroyed. So I don't, I don't, I honestly, I really don't get it. So if you're Al Gore and you say, nothing is more important than climate change, I'm a better person than you are because I care more than you. By the way, I have one of the largest houses in Nashville and I fly private and I take a suburban to the private airport, to the FBO. Why should I be okay? I mean, I'm, sincerely, why, are, why is that, that is okay? Not going to individual choices are not going to solve the disaster that we are facing. We already why? have a migration issue. We already have flooding. We already have hurricanes like that have hit Puerto Rico, have hit, uh, uh, have hit New Orleans, have hit Florida, and okay, have displaced so many working people. This is an industry change. We have to cap emissions globally. But, but hold on, but hold on. And if then we don't why cap we, emissions with big industries and policy, okay. then those individual choices mean nothing. Okay, well, first of all, first of all, hold on. First of all, individual choices always mean something. In and a libertarian's cease, fantasy world, no, sure. I'm not, I'm not a libertarian, and I'm not living in a fantasy world. In real life, mm 
Mm. Individual choices matter or else what's the point of any of this, okay? So it does start with, liberals used to say it starts with one person. I guess they don't anymore because they don't want to be held to their own standards. But the solutions are always like, Ordinary working people ought to pay higher gas taxes. It's not but the solution get... at all. And actually, we are against that. Progressives versus the neoliberals and neocons, progressives understand that this needs to be a huge policy change. The place where we are right now, if we increase the temperature one degree, you and I won't be living in D.C. and New York anymore. Okay, but, but we will on, be displaced. But no, no, I want to talk about the public policy. Okay, yes, I want to talk about the public policy, policy yeah. solutions that will flow from the predictions that you're making. Mm -hmm. Is there any solution you've ever heard of that doesn't increase the price of energy? I've never Abs heard of one. Well, okay, so if you're going to be focused on the price of energy, we're not going well, to have a plan in 10 years. Well, hold on. No, we have to wait, talk wait, about well, changing... Wait, 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 hold on. I, <laughs> well, thought, you finish, cared. I thought you cared about working ah, people. La, 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 la. We're going I down would... a rabbit hole. I want to well, talk not. about the solutions. A solution would be a Green New Deal, moving to 100% renewable energy, forcing the companies that are jacking up the prices on working people okay. to actually reduce their emissions so that working people aren't displaced, so working people don't but have to pay the cost of hurricane damage and have clean water, and the water is not being privatized. Volume is not the same as an argument, okay? So just really simple question. You don't Would like your opinion women, do you? <laughs> yeah, the segment speaks for itself. What Tucker, I mean fucker, Tucker says here is that Bernie Sanders is immoral. He's judging Bernie Sanders. He's using a moral argument to discredit Bernie Sanders. But why don't you look in the mirror before judging somebody else's morality, Tucker? given that you use your platform to spew white nationalist propaganda on a daily basis. I'm sorry, maybe that's too harsh, white nationalish propaganda. But what Namiki Konst said here as she put this gish-galloping fuckwad in his place is that expecting worldwide change at the individual consumer level is just absurd. It's impossible. We didn't try to close the hole in the Earth's ozone layer by relying on individuals to act responsibly. Change came from governments who took action, who regulated industries that were emitting harmful chemicals that were destroying the ozone layer. And I don't even really have to explain this to fucker, I mean Tucker, because he knows that this is the case. This is just a tactic. It's a tactic for Tucker. It's a tactic for Steve Ducey and the moron he brought on his program. This is a tactic that conservatives are using to essentially filibuster to make sure that they delay action on climate change so fossil fuel companies can continue making as much money as possible by fucking up the planet. Here's the thing. First, they said climate change was a hoax and didn't exist. Then they said, okay, well, maybe climate change is real, but it's just, it's not us who are causing it, so therefore we can't do anything. And now they're saying, well, look, maybe climate change is real. I'll grant to you that it's anthropogenic as well, but the people who are advocating for climate change, maybe they're hypocrites because they still have a carbon footprint. Rather than just continuously moving the goalpost, why don't you just admit what we all know you feel inside? That you don't give a damn about climate change. Catastrophic climate change doesn't scare you because fossil fuel profits are more important to you than humanity and the planet. Just admit that. Don't keep beating around the bush. Just be bold and come out and say it, fucker. I mean, Tucker. Just say it. Just say it, you fucker. No correction there. Just say that you don't give a damn about the planet because we all know that that's an open secret. Just say it. Just say what you really think. You don't care. And you don't have to care. That's fine. But we care. And don't shit on us 
for protecting the planet and wanting to save the planet in order to make sure that it's still habitable and a decent place to live for your children, Tucker and Steve Ducey. So I'm just, I'm out of patience for these propagandists. They are using every single tactic possible to filibuster and delay action, but the time has come. We've got 12 years to act. We don't have time to deal with your bullshit. Either we act or humanity goes extinct in a couple hundred years, if we're lucky. So we don't have much time left to act. And all you're doing is shitting on people who care about an issue that will impact all of our lives, including yours. It's been a few days since Fox News released an attack on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, so to make up for their lack of AOC coverage, they decided to put out a more vicious-than-usual attack on her for, you could have guessed, her intelligence. Claiming that she is unintelligent, she's naive, she's in over her head, the usual that we've come to expect from Fox News. A beacon of intelligence who props up the president who likes to tweet about a smocking gun. That, to them, is intelligence. But someone like Ocasio-Cortez, an eloquent speaker who's passionately fighting for what she believes in, she's not intelligent. So, we're going to play a clip from a segment where they talk about an exchange she had with Donald Trump Jr. And... The way that they framed this was as if she was inherently wrong for responding, but in actuality, I think that they were just butthurt because she put him in his place in a really savage way. Congresswoman-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez sparring with Donald Trump Jr. on social media. Ocasio-Cortez tweeting, I have noticed that Jr. here has a habit of posting nonsense about me whenever the Mueller investigation heats up. Please keep it coming, Jr. It's definitely a very, very large brain idea to troll a member of a body that will have subpoena power in a month. Have fun. That came in response to a photo Trump Jr. posted on Instagram mocking Ocasio-Cortez, who is a self-described democratic socialist. What do you make of this back and forth? Uh, this confirms what I've long believed, which is that social media is making us all stupid, and we should <laughs> unplug, turn off our phones, delete Twitter, and spend less time on it, and have actual face-to-face -face conversations with people. And don't just surround yourself with people that agree with you, but seek out people that disagree and have a civil conversation. But you're on Twitter. I understand this is Trump Jr., but when you see somebody get, in, you start to get into the mudslinging with the Trump team, it seems like it leads to a situation where you release your DNA results and you're less Native American than I I am. <laughs> I don't think that'll happen to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, I don't think that it's smart to throw around terms like subpoena, especially when you haven't even taken your seat yet. And as she then pointed out in the when she backed up off of it, I won't, you know, I'm a freshman. I'm not going to have a good job on any of these committees anyway. So clearly we didn't get to the worst of their attack there, but I just kind of wanted to show you that clip because it kind of gives you the setup and let you know how they're choosing to frame this discussion. They basically imply that, well, even if Trump Jr. said something that was really fucked up to her and made fun of her, I don't know what it was that he said specifically. I tried to find it, but you know, I could only stay on his Twitter timeline for, for so long before I've got a bail because I feel like I'm losing IQ points. But basically, the implication is that you can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with someone from the Trump administration because, you know, it, it could backfire. 
you could be the next Elizabeth Warren and faceplant as you try to take on someone from the Trump administration or Trump's family. In other words, if they attack you and tweet out really cruel things about you, just don't respond, just shut up. Actually, no, she's going to respond. And in fact, I like when she responds because Ocasio-Cortez gives them a taste of their own medicine because they think that they could just be nasty, tweet out insulting things about progressives and liberals and get away with it. But I'm sick of it. Republicans always fight dirty, but when progressives and Democrats fight back, well, there's this implication that you can't respond to them. Just shut up. Just let them say what they want. Well, no, Ocasio-Cortez isn't a pushover. They're analyzing this entire exchange from the viewpoint that it's Ocasio-Cortez that's in the wrong. Even if she didn't necessarily instigate this exchange, she's still wrong for responding. But in this next clip that I'm going to show you, the conversation kind of takes a surprising turn because that same person who criticized Ocasio-Cortez is actually going to compliment her. But since that's clearly not what you're supposed to do on Fox News, Kennedy, one of their hosts, decided to then steer the conversation off of a cliff where she goes in and attacks Ocasio-Cortez for being an idiot. But I do think, and you know I'm not particularly a fan of her politics, that she's far further left than I am, she is doing something very important for transparency in Congress with the live tweeting of everything that's going on, the orientations where she's pointing out they're all lobbyists, where's labor? Though people pointed out labor could come if they wanted to host orientations. And I like that she's doing the videos and really involving her constituents. She's saying, you sent me here. This is what's really going on. And I think that is valuable for a public that doesn't trust people who hold elected office. No offense, you seem great. Yeah. Right. I like the videos because uh, she shows how empty-headed she really is, and, and her brain is as empty as socialism itself and the ideas that she pushes. I don't have a problem with trolling and counter-trolling, and, and I don't have a lot of patience for people who get so outraged because, you know, Don Jr. says one thing and she responds. Uh, I do agree with you that, that people who think they're going to punch the president in the same manner uh, as hard as he does, I, I think they create problems for themselves. And it's very inauthentic, like trying to fight the president or members of his family uh, the way that he does. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And she needs to revert back to what it was about her that resonated with voters that allowed her to unseat uh, a popular long term incumbent in a, a primary. And I think she's gotten away from that. And, you know, she's she's bought into her own mystique, which has certainly tarnished a bit in the last few interviews. So at the start of that clip, we saw the host compliment Ocasio-Cortez surprisingly on Fox News. I don't know if she got the memo that you're not supposed to do that. We saw her compliment Ocasio-Cortez because she's doing something really important for government transparency with her Instagram live streams and whatnot. But then Kennedy chimed in and said, I like the videos because she shows how empty headed she really is. And her brain is as empty as socialism itself and the ideas that she pushes. So, the videos of her show how empty-headed she is, according to Kennedy. Well, okay, if you think that she's empty-headed, if you think she's a moron because of the ideas that she espouses, then the burden is on you to explain why that makes her empty-headed. Why is a policy like Medicare for All that would literally save lives, why is that empty-headed? Why is tackling climate change empty-headed? What's empty-headed about people making a living wage? I mean, what 
is idiotic about these ideas specifically. Kennedy, don't just say that she's an idiot. Actually make a fucking argument. And she implies essentially that being socialist is just inherently idiotic. Well, why do you not like socialism? What about socialism makes it idiotic? It's an ideology that is so dim-witted and nonsensical that anyone who finds it persuasive must be idiotic. Well, why? You're just saying that anyone who's a socialist is an idiot, but you're not explaining what's your argument against socialism. Now, if I had to guess, this would be Kennedy's argument against socialism. Now, she also said something that was pretty suspect to me. She says, it's very inauthentic, remember that word, trying to fight the president and members of his family the way that he does, the way that he does. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't, I don't know how giving them a taste of their own medicine doesn't make sense to you, but that word inauthentic is pretty interesting to me coming from someone like Kennedy because she knows a thing or two about authenticity or inauthentic people because she's only adopting this quote edgy persona and acting as if she's some pseudo provocateur because she knows that she's generally unlikable and it's the only feasible way that she's able to market herself in mainstream media. And you don't have to take my word for it because in an interview with Sway, she talked about how her being really unliked as an MTV VJ in her previous career is kind of what catalyzed this new persona that we see, the edgy Kennedy, the provocateur Kennedy. This is what she had to say. When did you first start feeling or recognizing that your presence, your image, your likeness is starting to be recognized and, and resonates with the a general public. When, when I was voted the most hated VJ after just a couple months on the air. Damn, the most oh, hated. The, yeah, and the Rolling Stone readers. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> and I was like, I opened the magazine because I knew every year they had a, a least favorite or most hated and mm. most loved. Yeah. And I opened it up like hoping that I would be most loved because I thought that yeah, I was such a classy lady. Yeah. And I see most hated with my name next to it and uh, my heart just sank and I had to decide in that moment like that was such a pivotal point because I'm like okay do I embrace the hate or do I try and get people to like me and I was like nah that takes too much work and I, I can't be a phony yeah so I was like you know what I'll be I'll be polarizing and you all can eat a bag of dicks so she wanted people to like her at first but they didn't because she's a generally unlikable person so in order to appear less phony she decided to be more polarizing because that's how she felt would help boost her career. But understand that presenting yourself as something that you're not is the definition of phoniness. It's exactly what I'd call inauthentic. Until this very day, she's still a phony because she's trying to present herself as an edgy libertarian who's politically savvy, but notice how she never actually talks about the policy itself. She just talks about how people who disagree with her philosophy and libertarianism are empty-headed, are dumb. Well, isn't that convenient? Anyone who disagrees with the policies that you support is dumb. Meanwhile, you'll never actually talk about the policy substance yourself. You'll never talk about really what you believe, or you'll never try to respond to socialism or Medicare for all or why you think these are bad ideas. It's almost as if the libertarian worldview that you're espousing 
is indefensible in practice because it doesn't fucking work. And any time someone of your ilk tries to defend libertarianism, they faceplant and something like this happens. What? The government doesn't do anything good. Right. Name one problem you could possibly have in your life, Joe Rogan, that you'd be like, get me get the government to solve this. Do they do the post office well? No. What, like, what do they do well? They do the post office pretty good, actually. But guess what? If the post office <laughs> closed tomorrow, it would be all right. You'd still get mail. Get, would Amazon suck. would pick. No, it wouldn't. Amazon would, would pick that up. You'd have to send things through UPS. It would cost a lot more. It wouldn't though. Competition would start kicking in, and between UPS and FedEx and Amazon and drones and blah 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 mm -hmm. and DHL, they'd all start. It would probably drop prices mm -hmm. because right now we've just got this artificial thing that sits there that then allows them to price according to that. But if you drop that, why is the government in that business anymore? I, I have three chickens. I've really done the Joe Rogan lifestyle here over the last couple of years. So I have three chickens right now. We had, I'm gonna give you a good UPS story. We ordered them, they were born in August on a Monday in uh, Cleveland. They hatched that day, they threw them in a box with a little hole, USPS, and they showed up at my door in LA on a Tuesday. The USPS has been doing that for about a years. It's the days. only way you can do it, by the way. You can't order chickens through any other method. Oh, is it just USPS? Yeah. So actually, I was giving the USPS credit there because my chickens all arrived live. Yeah, they send them to chicks. Yeah. That's the only way you're, you're buying these live chicks. That's the way you get them. You yeah. get them through the US Postal Service. But you I'm don't get them through UPS. I'm pretty sure, though, that if the USPS stopped, it didn't exist anywhere, you'd still get chickens delivered. And Amazon could probably do it even more effectively. So if we remove government regulations, then iPhones and Yelp and cameras and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you can't make an argument because libertarians like you, Kennedy, don't have an argument. So when you hear Ocasio-Cortez talk about things like Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, a livable wage, all you can do is say, oh, well, she's stupid because you're just projecting. You're actually stupid. Because if you were someone who was confident in this ideological worldview that you stand by, maybe it would be worthwhile to explore some of your specific disagreements with Ocasio-Cortez rather than just calling her an idiot and chalking up all disagreements with your worldview to stupidity or someone being empty-headed. But look, I'm actually giving you advice that you don't deserve because you not being able to make an argument or unwilling but probably unable to actually benefits progressives because while you scream about Venezuela, we're actually making a persuasive argument and we're winning because guess what? A majority of Americans support Medicare for all and 52% of your party supports Medicare for all. Most Americans believe in a federal jobs guarantee, increasing the minimum wage. And guess what? We're going to win on more issues as well. So keep calling Ocasio-Cortez and other progressives, myself included, stupid anytime you disagree with us. Because all you're doing is proving our point that you don't have an argument and we do. And it's not helping your cause at all. And it's certainly not making you seem edgy or seem as if you're a provocateur. It's just making you seem like the hack that you are in actuality. And I don't even necessarily know that you believe the bullshit that you espouse. You're probably just saying it because you're playing the role of an edgy libertarian who's on Fox News who's supposed to be against progressive policies. So you're doing exactly what a phony hack would do. We're saying Merry Christmas again. Last week on the program, I made fun of Fox News for sounding the alarms about the so-called war on Christmas, but 
This week, I'm kind of eating my own words because I think they may actually be onto something. There may actually be a war on Christmas. And I found evidence that there's a war on Christmas myself because I walked into a department store looking for the cassette tape version of NSYNC's Home for Christmas and it was nowhere to be found. I could find it everywhere when I was a kid, but all of a sudden, it is nowhere to be found, which is evidence that things have changed, which is evidence that there's an all-out assault on Christmas, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I don't think you need any more evidence, because I think that that alone, that anecdotal example, confirms beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a war on Christmas, but if that wasn't enough, then Fox News is going to have another example for you. This year in the state of Illinois, in the Capitol building in Springfield, they now have added a satanic statue to its official holiday display between a Christmas tree and a menorah. The sculpture, funded by the Satanic Temple of Chicago, depicts a hand holding an apple with a snake wrapped around it. Is political correctness taking over the Christmas season? Joining us right now to weigh in is the host of the Mike Slater Show. Mike Slater joins us from San Diego. San Diego. Mike, what do you think about the fact that the satanic group has put this particular piece of art next to a Christmas tree and a menorah? Yeah, you know, Steve, with this story in particular, I, uh, I used to get really outraged by this, but right now I'm, I'm just, I feel sad. I feel sad for them. Uh, they're so deceived. Uh, I think this is a sign of how prosperous we are here in America, uh, where these people don't think they need God, and they get their kicks out of mocking God. They get their kicks out of mocking this religion and mocking uh, 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 Christmas in general. Uh, but I'll tell you, it's not going to affect my walk with God. It's not going to affect what happens inside my house. It's not going to affect what I teach my kids and the Bible. Uh, so I just feel sad for these people. A, a friend of mine just got back, two days ago, got back from a Middle Eastern country, right. And he had to go to underground churches where they had one wow. Bible. And truly, if they got caught, they would be killed. Uh, so people over there aren't worshiping Satan openly. So right. it's a shame that Americans here are abusing the freedoms here when they could be worshiping God. Hang on a second, because I think we really need to take a moment to dissect what Steve Ducey is saying here. Because... He talks about the Satanic Temple statue and how outrageous it is. And then he asks the question, is political correctness taking over the Christmas season? Wait, aren't you the one who's being too politically correct? Seeing that you're the one who's outraged by something? Why is it that when liberals are offended by something, we're being too politically correct, but when conservatives are offended, it's still the liberals who are being too politically correct? I don't, <laughs> I don't think that it works that way, Steve, and if it does, then it shouldn't. You should realize that there's a double standard there, but nonetheless, Mike Slater joins the conversation to talk about how appalled he is. In fact, he doesn't even have words. He's so upset by this that he doesn't even know what to say he used to get outraged by this but now he's just sad for us sad for us atheist satan worshipers i think that was the implication but specifically he says i used to get really outraged by this but right now i just feel sad for them they're so deceived i think this is a sign for how prosperous we are in america where these people think they don't need God and they get their kicks out of mocking God. <laughs> <laughs>
Hail Satan 666. Well, if you knew anything about politics and economics and income inequality, you'd know that people, generally speaking, aren't that prosperous. It's the elites who are taking all the wealth. And these elites get coverage by the network that you're on, Fox News, but that's a whole nother rabbit hole. What he says here is that we are mocking God. No, there is religious symbols on public property. So if you're going to give them representation, then you also have to give representation to other religions that you view as more unorthodox, including Satanism. And what they don't get is that the satanic temple is trolling them. If there is some type of statue like the Ten Commandments on public property, well then, what the satanic temple does is make a constitutionally sound argument and get their own version of a statue put up. And it's absolutely great because Fox News walks into this trap every single time. Now, Mike Slater goes on to talk about his friend, what's his name, who just returned home from the Middle East, who claimed that he was in a country in the Middle East where people would be killed if they were caught with a Bible. Okay, we're going to need more details because for one, if this country is as totalitarian as you say it is, I doubt your friend would want to go there. Second of all, is it Saudi Arabia? Because this sounds the most like Saudi Arabia. Now, what's this guy not telling you? Well, not only would they kill you if they caught you with a Bible, they'd also kill you for being an atheist or gay, or a Satan worshiper, but he didn't want to tell you that. He conveniently left that part out because it wouldn't fit into his Christian persecution complex narrative, but he goes on to make the most ridiculous point ever about how we're actually abusing the freedom we have because we're not using it to worship God. But isn't that the whole point of freedom? You can do what you want, and we can do what we want. You can worship God, and we can worship the devil. Now, I don't believe in the devil, because I don't believe in any religion. I'm an atheist, but if I did want to worship the devil, then you're not going to stop me, because we do live in a free country with freedom of religion. And, specifically, more importantly for this discussion, separation of church and state. So if you're going to expect representation for your religion on public property, then expect Satanists to get representation as well. But this example doesn't necessarily lend too much credence to the claim that there's a war on Christmas because it's just not a very compelling example. The Satanists are also celebrating Christmas, albeit in their own way. So, fucker Carlson, I mean, Tucker Carlson is going to come in and give us another example that he found a really obscure example that he found to demonstrate that the war on Christmas isn't as laughable as liberals want you to believe. Well, the war on Christmas is totally fake. They always tell you that on TV, but it's also underway again and got off to a hot start last week with the left launching a new offensive against Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Now the war machine is opening up new fronts faster than we can keep up, but we're trying. An elementary school principal in Nebraska has banned a whole swath of Christmas-related items from his school. That would include Christmas trees, elves, Santa, and red-green color combinations. How about candy canes? Are they allowed? No. They're banned, too. Why? Because they're in the shape of a J, which represents Jesus. Mark Stein is an author and columnist. He joins us tonight. You know, I just want to say again, the war on Christmas is not real, Mark, so stop talking about no. it, you right-wing right no, no. fox guy. 
Yeah, entirely fictitious. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll bite. I'll bite on that and go back a, a couple of centuries, Tucker. You know, uh, the separation of church and state. When the founders came up with it, it's basically that they didn't want President Washington being the head of the Church of America as the Queen is head of the Church of England. That's it. They didn't want the Archbishop of Virginia sitting in the Senate as the Archbishop yeah. of Canterbury sits in the House of Lords. And like a lot of uh, sane concepts. It's uh, metastasized into something utterly insane. Okay, so was it just me, or did that last guy sound exactly like Kyle Kalinske's impression of elitist snobs? Bow! Bow your head to the wonderful John McCain, good sir. Don't you know that this is how Americans want you to act? Please show the establishment the respect it deserves. Thank you very much. The resemblance is uncanny. <laughs> it really like struck me when I first heard him talk because it sounds exactly like Kyle. I think Kyle should collect royalties from this guy because that is very, very similar, eerily similar. So basically, to get to the segment itself, Tucker Carlson is pushing back against us pushing back against him pushing back against the war on Christmas. And he has evidence that there's a war on Christmas because he found one example from one school in one area in the country. So because you found one example of someone doing things you deemed anti-Christmas, well, apparently, that's it. You can wash your hands. You found evidence that there is, in fact, a war on Christmas. Do you really want to play this game, Tucker? I don't think you want to play this game because if you think that one example is emblematic of the totality of the left, then I could find examples of pretty problematic Republicans. So let's play this game. A Republican neo-Nazi won his primary just this year, so I guess that that means every single Republican is a neo-Nazi. An anti-gay Republican got caught up in a sex scandal. I guess that means that every single Republican is gay. Ten Republicans in Louisiana voted against a bill that criminalized bestiality. I guess that means every single Republican is into bestiality. Would you look at that? I mean, do you see why we don't play this game, fucker? I mean, Tucker? Because that's what happens. If you're going to cherry pick and isolate one example and try to prop that up as an accurate representation of your opponent's we can do the same goddamn thing. But he's convinced that, you know, we shouldn't make fun of him, you know, because it's really mean because there is this war on Christmas. And he's not alone because the conservative duo collectively known as Dilk also chimed in when it comes to the war on Christmas. And they want us to stop making fun of baby Jesus. Massachusetts church receiving massive backlash over a controversial nativity scene, which included placing a baby Jesus inside a cage. Yes, and writing the word deportation over the wise men. All of this is a way to quote, spark a conversation about the current illegal immigration situation at the border. Here with their thoughts, diamond and silk. So I guess they're trying to make a point about, you know, Donald Trump separated families. He put kids in cages. I mean, what are you guys supposed to say about that? Obama put baby Jesus in a cage first? Well, here's the deal. I think what the church should be focusing on 
is uh, uh, Planned Parenthood, how they take and abort babies. I think that's what they should be focused on. They should be focused on all of the hate that's going on from the Democratic Party and Democrats that hate this sitting president. That's what they should be focused on instead of putting baby Jesus in a cage because Donald Trump didn't do that. That was done up under the Obama administration. What Donald Trump did, President Trump did, was follow the law. And it's really sad that I see these churches wanting to make a mockery of people's faith and religion and traditions. It's really, really sad. That is a clear example of the war on Christmas because that church made a mockery of baby Jesus by putting him in a cage. It's not Donald Trump who is supposedly a Christian who actually put real children in cages. It's this church who made a mockery of their religion who's waging this war on Christmas. And my question is, why didn't they talk about this cat who was also making a mockery of their religion? Because photographer Brooke Goldman captured this photo of a cat actually sitting in the cradle that baby Jesus was born in. I mean, how much more evidence do you liberals need to see before you acknowledge the fact that there is a war on Christmas? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is the um, level of absurdity we're reaching here. Now, they decided to use the hypocrite argument, where you pivot to a different example and say, well, you don't care about issue X, which is more important than issue Y, so you must be a hypocrite. And they say, well, you know, if this church really cares about kids being in cages, and presumably that means they care about babies, they should do more to stop abortion. Okay, that's great. If you want to up the ante that way, we could up the ante as well and say, well, if you care about abortion, Dilk 1 and Dilk 2, then why don't you advocate for increased access to contraception? Because that's the one thing that actually reduces abortions. Why don't you support that? Furthermore, why don't you call on your president, who you love and support so much, to stop giving Saudi Arabia bombs that they're using to drop on children in Yemen? And of course, they also invoked the typical whataboutism argument. Oh, what? Trump did this? That's bad? Well, Obama also did this, that's bad. But you see, the reason why this doesn't work against progressives, the reason why people like H.A. Goodman are face-planting in an attempt to own the libs by using this argument, is because we don't claim to like Obama. You claim to like Donald Trump. We claim to dislike both Obama and Trump. So by saying, well, yeah, I know that Donald Trump did this thing that's unethical, but Obama also did it. Well, if you dislike Obama and he did something that Trump is now doing, then shouldn't it just logically follow that you dislike Trump for doing what Obama did? I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. This is why whataboutism doesn't necessarily make for a compelling argument, because you're pointing out the flaws in someone the left supposedly supports in order to validate what Donald Trump is doing, but really, it should logically follow that you stop supporting Donald Trump because he's doing what the president who you don't like is doing. But I don't want to get too far off topic here, because the point is that there's a war on Christmas, or at least Fox News wants you to think that there's a war on Christmas. And if there's any example anywhere in the country, no matter how insignificant it is, you can count on Fox News to find it and exploit the shit out of it for political gain. Happy holidays, everyone. So as you all know by now, last week we got bombshell news that President Donald Trump has been implicated in federal crimes. 
So he is very likely in serious trouble. And as Glenn Fleischman reports, Donald Trump coordinated with Michael Cohen to commit federal campaign fraud prosecutor state in a sentencing memo filed December 7th advising a substantial prison term for crimes to which Cohen has pleaded guilty. Attorneys from the Southern District of New York State explicitly stated in the court filing that Cohen acted in coordination and at the direction of individual one in handling payments to to two women who claimed to have an affair with Trump long before the election. Trump is identified in this and other filings by U.S. attorneys as individual one who was elected as president. The women are Karen McDougal and Stephanie Clifford, known professionally as Stormy Daniels. Cohen had in August pleaded guilty to several charges related to tax evasion, lying to banks, and campaign finance fraud, and stated in court he had coordinated campaign finance felonies with a political candidate that could only have been the president and who he later identified as Trump. However, this is the first time prosecutors had stated in a court filing that Cohen acted in coordination with Trump. So we are looking at a gigantic shitstorm here. And there's talks that Robert Mueller is getting ready to close this investigation and soon release his final report. And as a result, he's turning towards the president and his family. And we may be looking at a Trump Jr. indictment in the near future. And even if Donald Trump is trying to play it cool publicly by tweeting things like he was totally cleared, which is definitely not weird at all, <laughs> White House sources tell CNN that he's secretly shitting himself about now because he sees impeachment as a real possibility. So the question is, how will members of the Republican Party respond knowing that the leader of their party has now been implicated in federal crimes? Well, they're going to respond in a variety of ways. If you're Orrin Hatch, your response is going to be, eh. I, I don't care. All I can say is he's doing a good job as president. It doesn't bother you, these, these crimes that he allegedly was involved in as president? That doesn't bother you? No, because I don't think he was involved in crimes. But even then, you know, uh, you can make anything a crime under the current laws. So uh, that's one way that they're responding. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't really care. He's doing such a good job as president, guys. Don't you love how we're winning? I mean, he's gutting the Clean Air Act. He's letting fossil fuel companies pollute. He pulled us out of the Paris Climate Agreement. But don't you just love how good of a job he's doing? No, he's doing a pretty terrible job. But if you're Orrin Hatch and you are a ghoul, then, yeah, you could see that it's clear why he likes Donald Trump. Now, House... Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy commented on Donald Trump, and he actually tried to mount a defense of Donald Trump. And what he's going to say towards the end of this clip that I'm about to show you is very telling. You look at what Comey said in there, the FISA, mm -hmm. going after individual. Here they are. Comey knew that um, who paid for the dossier, and he still not did not tell the courts. He thought there was nothing wrong with the, what they did went through with FISA. I thought that was a major problem inside that. Oh, you just heard. You just heard from Jerry Nadler. Here's Adam Schiff on CBS on Sunday. 
My takeaway is there's a very real prospect that uh, on the day Donald Trump leaves office, the Justice Department uh, may indict him, uh, that he may be the first president uh, in quite some time to face the real prospect of jail time. Listen, Schiff is the same individual who two years ago, before any investigation started, said he had proof and that he could never produce anything. His credibility is rather low inside Washington for his members on either side of the aisle. Um, I think what it shows, if the president hires an attorney to solve a problem, he expects him to do it in a legal manner. I don't see, and if, if Schiff is taking this beyond to, to go forward and say there's an impeachable offense because of a campaign finance problem, there's a lot of members in Congress who would have to leave for that same place. So that was a really interesting Freudian slip by Kevin McCarthy there. He said, to go forward and say there's an impeachable offense because of a campaign finance problem, there's a lot of members in Congress who would have to leave for that same place. I think he meant same thing. So in other words, I mean, if we impeach Donald Trump for violating campaign finance laws, then I mean, could you imagine? There are going to be other people in Congress guilty of doing the same thing. Well, is that so? <laughs> I mean, it's not like that's surprising. We already know that everyone in Washington, D.C. is corrupt. But I don't necessarily think you're supposed to say that out loud, Mr. McCarthy. What are you hiding? See, there's a reason why you would defend Donald Trump for something that's indefensible, for violating campaign finance laws. It's because you yourself may have some skeletons in the closet. And it's not even like a lot of them would be impeached for violating campaign finance laws because campaign finance violations occur and oftentimes, you know, the candidates are just fined. But I mean, if you're basically trying to cover for Trump by throwing everyone else under the bus saying that they have done things that are comparable to what Trump did here, then really that's a bombshell. Maybe somebody should look into members of Congress. And hell, maybe we should. Impeach every last one of you corrupt bastards in D.C. who are corrupt. Because guess what? Corruption is unethical. That's the first point. And two, if we're going to have laws in this country, we can't just apply them to the peasants. Elites also have to be found guilty when they violate laws. Be it criminal laws, civil laws, campaign finance laws, I don't care. If we commit crimes, we're prosecuted and imprisoned. When elites commit crimes, when financial elites and Wall Street executives commit crimes, I mean, we'd be lucky if they got a slap on the wrist, if they get yelled at by Elizabeth Warren. So, if we're going to have laws in this country, if the Republican Party really is the party of law and order, then maybe it's time we investigate every single person in Congress and impeach people from both parties if they are in fact corrupt and violating campaign finance laws. So thank you very much, Kevin, for revealing that. I know you're probably going to get reprimanded by other Republican Party colleagues that you have, but um, you know, you're just confirming what we already knew. I'm not sure if you all remember this, it happened just a couple of weeks ago, but if we wanted to walk into a grocery store and purchase romaine lettuce, well, we couldn't. Stores removed them because there was a nationwide warning about 
romaine lettuce being contaminated by E. coli. Now, if you're wondering why this happened and who to thank for it, it's this guy. You can thank Donald Trump because as Elizabeth Shrogren and Susie Nielsen of Wired explain, six months before people were sickened by the contaminated romaine, President Trump's FDA, responding to pressure from the farm industry and Trump's order to eliminate regulations, shelved the water testing rules for at least four years. Now, logically, after a deadly E. coli outbreak like this, you would expect Donald Trump's FDA to reconsider their decision to shell these rules because we just saw how dangerous deregulation can be. You deregulate the industry, reduce standards, and then you make us more susceptible to, to things like this. So you think that, okay, now they're, they're going to change their ways and reinstate these rules, but they're not going to do that. They're still not doing that after we had a nationwide E. coli outbreak. And it's not just like they're not reconsidering these rules. They're doing more, actually doing more to make sure that the water you and I put in our bodies is contaminated because Donald Trump's administration is moving to gut even more of the Clean Water Act. And as The Intercept's Sharon Lerner explains, a new water rule that will strip federal protections from an estimated 60 to 90 percent of U.S. waterways will dramatically ease restrictions on how polluting industries do business. According to the rule, which is due out next week, streams that don't run year-round and many wetlands will no longer be subject to the Clean Clean Water Act. As a result, a wide range of industries, including agriculture, mining, waste management, chemical companies, real estate development, and road construction will be free to pollute, reroute, and pave over these waterways as they see fit. But oil and gas transport companies may benefit most from the imminent shift. When the rules take effect, pipeline construction projects that are currently required to undergo months or even years of scrutiny from water experts in order to minimize their environmental impact will be allowed to speed forward. For energy companies that have been pushing for exactly these changes for years, the new rule may be well worth the wait. So understand that we saw what happened. Six months ago, President Trump's FDA eased rules with regard to water cleanliness. And sanitation because that's what the industry that's what farming and agriculture wanted him to do he does it and then we have a nationwide e coli outbreak and just weeks later we're learning that they're gonna gut the clean water act and make companies who desperately need to be regulated I mean we're talking about waste management and chemical companies well if they don't run year-round, they're not going to be subject to the Clean Water Act. So what did Donald Trump say just last week, I think it was, when he was asked about the multi-agency report on climate change? I support clean water. So I want clean air, I want clean water, very important. Is that so? Because you're doing more to gut regulations that are crucial to maintain the cleanliness and sanitation of our water. How many people will this affect and make sick? How many individuals will die as a result of him deregulating the industry? Because him and other Republicans, to be fair, they just have this dedication to this 
amorphous idea of deregulation, that it's inherently good no matter what. There's no nuance needed whatsoever. But when you basically prop up this idea that the government puts too much red tape on companies, you're also legitimizing this notion that we should also do things like this. Gut the Clean Water Act. And to really put forward another example to demonstrate how absurd our society is and just how disgusting and predatory capitalism is, Sharon Lerner produced another article where she talks about a company solving a crisis they started. So, DuPont opened a factory in Saudi Arabia last week that will produce reverse osmosis water filters. The filters use ultra-thin membranes to remove water impurities, including PFAS, chemicals made and used by DuPont that have caused widespread water contamination around the world. Reverse osmosis is one of the technologies that the Environmental Protection Agency recommends for reducing water contamination from PFAS chemicals, which are associated with cancers, immune dysfunction, reproductive issues, and other health problems. According to the agency's website, reverse osmosis membranes are typically more than 90% effective at removing a wide range of PFAS, including shorter chain PFAS. These companies are shameless. This is what capitalism permits. They allow companies to pollute and create crises and then profit off of solving the problems they created. Is that not insane? This is absurd, people. What are we doing? We are allowing companies to pollute the planet, to ruin drinking water that's needed for life to exist. Also, that way they can increase shareholder value. And the individual that's allowing for this to happen is Donald J. Trump. Is this part of all the winning he said would happen on the campaign trail? I remember he said that there'd be so much winning, we'd get sick of it. Because I'm definitely sick of this shit. So is this the winning he was referring to? If you're a Donald Trump supporter, how do you defend this? That's my question. How do you still defend him as he pollutes the drinking water that's going to be going into your children's bodies? Water that is needed to sustain life, to nourish our bodies. How do you defend this move here? How do you defend this? Libertarians like Dave Rubin, why don't you speak up? You said that since we live in an era where technology is prominent and we all have iPhones, you know, to catch companies as they pollute, as if people would go out of their way to do that. How do you defend this? We saw in practice what happens when you deregulate industries. We all know what happens. And we're doing it again. How can Republicans defend this? It's indefensible. That's the answer. And this is just one of many things Donald Trump is doing to not just ruin clean drinking water, but ruin the planet. And it's just despicable. The air that we breathe, he's deregulating industries that pollute. He's deregulating industries that um, need to be regulated just so we can maintain clean drinking water. I mean, I don't know what to say. It's, this is psychopathic. It's psychopathic behavior. Something only an amoral individual would allow to go on, especially after seeing the consequences of your deregulatory actions come to fruition. 
Bernie Sanders' bill to end U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen just advanced recently, and they're actually set to vote on it again at the time that I'm recording this video. So by the time you see this, it may very well already be the case that we know whether or not the Senate voted on this and how that went. But overall, in order for this to be a success, the House also has to adopt this. Now, Ro Khanna has teamed up with Bernie Sanders in this effort, and he has been doing a lot to push this bill, to push for a vote, and to encourage his colleagues to adopt this, to support this measure, and end the bloodshed. And before the vote, he released this passionate plea on Twitter that I was really touched by and I wanted you to see. Today is the last chance in this Congress for us to end the war in Yemen. This ought not to be a political issue. It's a humanitarian issue. The United Nations has told us that 12 to 14 million Yemenis face the possibility of famine and starvation in the next three months. Every 10 minutes, a young child is dying in Yemen because of cholera or starvation. We need to stop the bombing of the port of Hodeidah that the Saudis are doing and allow for food and medicine to get in so we can save lives and prevent a famine. Now, when we started this effort two years ago, most members of Congress didn't even know that we were actively involved in aiding the Saudi bombing of Yemen. We introduced a war powers resolution that frankly, the leadership of both parties at that time opposed. We've now come a long way. Senator Sanders has managed to get a vote in the Senate, and we need to get a vote in the House of Representatives so that Congress can speak with one voice. Article 1 of the Constitution gives Congress the power over war and peace. It's important to understand there is no authorization for what our government is doing by aiding the Saudis in this war in Yemen. Congress has never authorized it. We need to speak up and make it clear that our military should not be aiding Saudi Arabia in this horrific war. It's not in our strategic interest. The Saudis are actually aligned with Al-Qaeda in fighting the Houthis. It makes no strategic sense. And we have another generation growing up in Yemen, seeing American missiles take the lives of their family members. That's not making us any safer. America should have no complicity in this going forward. The time is long past due. The Senate and the House of Representatives need to act today. We need to end this war. So what he's saying here is indisputable. Not only is the United States' support for Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen unethical, but it's also not strategically sound. It doesn't suit our interests in spite of what Trump's administration may tell you. Stop giving Saudi Arabia bombs that they're using to kill children. That's all we're asking. We want children to stop being murdered, so it shouldn't be that difficult. And really, it's pretty common sense seeing that even a lot of Republicans support this, as extreme as they are. Now, what happened in the House with regard to this bill? Well, essentially, Republican Party leadership decided to postpone the vote on this. 
And they did this in the sleaziest way possible by slipping language into a different bill that stops a vote on this, maybe to hide it or to get it through easier. But either way, it was postponed. And as William Roberts of Al Jazeera explains, Republican leadership in Congress moved to stall until next year, a broadly supported congressional resolution aimed at ending U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's bombing campaign in Yemen. The move came as part of a tight procedural vote on Wednesday in the U.S. House of Representatives on an $837 billion five-year agriculture bill. Tucked within the rules governing the bill is a provision that says the War Powers Resolution, which fast-tracks certain bills, won't apply to any resolution related to Yemen for the rest of this Congress. The move will effectively block the House from taking up any bill on Yemen this year, even if one makes it through the Senate. The House is expected to pass the Farm Bill later on Wednesday. The 206-203 House vote is a temporary win for President Donald Trump, who has advanced a policy of U.S. support for Saudi Arabia in Yemen and its wider regional standoff with Iran. Trump has avoided blaming Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for the murder of writer Jamal Khashoggi, while members of Congress say U.S. intelligence points clearly to the Saudi leader. Advocates of the U.S. resolution to end U.S. involvement in Yemen, which is also pending debate and vote in the Senate on Wednesday, decried the Republican action. Now, everything that you're thinking right now, the outrage that you're feeling was essentially voiced by Representative Ro Khanna, who's been an advocate for this. And on the House floor, he talked about how absurd it is that we linked a farm bill about agriculture to Yemen. And this is what he had to say. What does a farm bill have to do with the war in Yemen? And the answer is absolutely nothing. You wonder why people are frustrated with Congress, why they think Congress lacks common sense. It's because no one understands why you would have a vote on a farm bill and you would tie it to a vote on war and peace in Yemen. The only reason the leadership is doing this is because they know that there are dozens of Republicans who will stand with Democrats to stop the killing in Yemen. How do they know this? Because Senate Republicans are voting to stop the killing in Yemen. I came to Congress because of my grandfather who inspired me, who spent four years in jail in Gandhi's independence movement. And I came to Congress to say that America should always stand for human rights. I urge my Republican colleagues, look at the pictures in the New York Times and Huffington Post. Five-year-old kids, seven-year-old kids starving to death. A Yemenese child dying every 10 minutes. They tell us to wait till January. That would mean thousands of more Yemenese kids dead. I don't think this is a partisan issue. This is an American issue. Let's stop the killing in Yemen. Let's end the famine. Let's have a vote in this house so we can stop the civil war in Yemen and save lives. So that was a very powerful speech because something he said resonated with me. He said that there's a child dying in Yemen every, I think it was 10 minutes. That's just, it's difficult to fathom that level of carnage and suffering and pain. So even if individuals might say, well, you know, this Congress is almost over, so it's not that bad that we delay it. No, actually, thousands of lives are going to perish because of this delayed vote. Now, 
Ro Khanna also took to Twitter to call out Paul Ryan by name, saying, This is why people hate Congress. Speaker Ryan is not allowing a vote on my resolution to stop the war in Yemen because many Republicans will vote with us and he will lose the vote. He is disgracing Article 1 of the Constitution and as a result, more Yemeni children will die. So as Paul Ryan heads into retirement, this is one of the lasting moves he's making. This will be one of the last things he does that's going to be part of his legacy. Block a vote on a bill that is going to lead to thousands of children dying. That blood is directly on his hands. But Paul Ryan didn't act alone. In fact, Republicans in general didn't act alone because there are five Democrats who aligned with Republicans who blocked the vote on this that essentially could have swayed it in the opposite direction. And Ken Klippenstein took the time to point out those five lawmakers and this Twitter user actually got all of their numbers for you to call and let them know So, um, how you feel. So that is Jim Costa. His number is 202-225-3341. Al Lawson, 202-225-0123. David Scott, 202-225-2939. Colin Peterson, 202-225-2165. And Dutch Ruppersberger, 202-225-3061. So Kyle Kalinske on Twitter made a point that really resonated with me. It was something to the effect of, we have to actually beg people to stop murdering children in Congress. That's how morally bankrupt they are. We have to beg them to do something as simple as just ending support for genocide. Democrats had the votes to pass this, but they didn't. And members of Congress are choosing to side with Donald Trump as they support a genocidal regime that is murdering children in Yemen. It's just disgusting. I'm embarrassed to be an American when our Congress can't even vote to end support for genocide. How disgusting is that? And I keep using the same adjectives such as disgusting and morally bankrupt, but I don't know how else to describe it. I feel as if there needs to be a new word to describe this level of disgustingness. I mean, I think that this kind of rises to the level of evilness. I don't think I'm embellishing to describe this as evil. It's fucking gross. Shame on every single one of these people. This is our Congress, ladies and gentlemen. They can't even vote to stop murdering children in Yemen. What a bunch of disgusting people we have supposedly representing us. President Trump met with Democratic Party leaders Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer today to discuss funding for his border wall. And it was absolutely batshit fucking insane because it reminded me of like a scene from a comedy movie almost. I mean, it was as if Donald Trump was a toddler who was throwing a temper tantrum in the store and everyone's watching you and the parents, you know, rather than treating him as the toddler that he is, they're trying to pretend as though he's an adult when in actuality he's a toddler and you need to treat him as such. So I'm not really going to give you a breakdown of what happened. Rather, I'm just going to show you some clips that I found. I guess we'll call them fascinating. <laughs> 
So the entire event starts with Donald Trump explaining the need for border security. And if you didn't watch this live and you're watching this after the fact, then just fast forward past the first five minutes because it's him just rambling on about nonsense, repeating himself multiple times like he usually does. And really, he didn't say anything meaningful or substantive at all. But it kind of got interesting when he talked about him being able to pass funding for a wall through Congress. It's just that he doesn't have the Senate, but he is confident that he can get enough votes in the House. However, Nancy Pelosi said, actually, you don't have the votes that you need for a wall in the House. And then this kind of catalyzed this back and forth between them, and it just did not stop. I think the American people recognize that we must keep government open, that a shutdown is not worth anything and that you should not have a Trump shutdown. Uh, you have the, oh, the oh, White House, you Trump, Trump shutdown. Oh. Oh. You have the White House, go you have the Senate, you have the House of Representatives, you have the votes, you should pass no, it No, we right don't have now. the votes, Nancy, because in the Senate we need 60 no, votes. No, no, but in the House, and we don't you have. could bring it up right now. Yeah, but today. I can't, excuse me, but I can't get it passed in the House if it's not going to pass in the Senate. I don't want to waste time. Well, you, well the fact is you can get it started that way. The and House we can get passed very easily, okay, and we do. do. But do the problem is the Senate, because we need 10 Democrats to vote, no, and no, they won't the vote. That's not the point, Mr. President. The point is, is that there are equities to be weighed. And we're here to have a conversation in a right. prayerful way, so I don't think we should have a debate right. in front of the press on this. But the fact is, the, Senate, the House Republicans could bring up this bill, if they had the votes, immediately, and set the tone for what you want. If we thought we were going to get it passed in the Senate, Nancy, we would do it immediately. We'd get it passed very easily in the House. No, we would get it, Nancy, I'd have it passed in two seconds. It doesn't matter, though, because we can't get it passed in the Senate because we need 10 Democrat votes. Well, That's the problem. Again, let us have our conversation, then That's we can right. meet with the press again. But the fact is, is that uh, legislating, which is what we do, right. you begin, you make your, your point, you state your case, that's what the House Republicans could do if they had the votes. But there are no votes in the House, a majority of votes, for a wall, no matter that where you exactly start. exactly right. You don't if have if I needed the, the votes for the wall in the House, I would have them in one session well, would be do done. It. Do it. it doesn't help because we need 10 Democrats in no, the Senate. No, don't put it on the Senate. Put it, of on, course. put it on the negotiation. Okay, let me ask you this. Just And we're doing this in a very friendly manner. It doesn't help for me to take a vote in the House where I will win easily with the Republicans. It doesn't help to take that vote because I'm not going to get the vote well, of the Senate. the Senate. I need 10 senators. That's Mr. the President, problem. You have the White House. You have the Senate. I have the you White have House. The, the White House, House is done. And the House would give me the vote if I wanted it. But I can't because well, I need, Nancy, I need 10 votes from Chuck. No, All right, let me President, say something let me here. Let me just say one thing. The fact is, you do not have the votes in the House. Nancy, I do. And we need well, border security. Vote, Nancy, we'll Nancy, we need border security. It's very simple. Of course we do. We need border security. People are pouring into our country, including terrorists. We have terrorists. We've caught 10 terrorists over the last very short period of time. 10. So that was just insufferable to me because they went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I have the votes for the wall in the House. 
Mr. President, no, you don't have the votes. Oh, I totally have the votes. Can't you see that I'm serious because I'm making a lowercase b with one hand and a lowercase d with another? I'm totally serious. I have the votes. But, Mr. President, you don't have the votes. No, I do have the votes. No, but, Mr. President, I'm telling you, you don't have the votes. No, but I do have the votes. Just stop. Holy shit. This conversation is going absolutely nowhere, and they're just repeating themselves. Like, I was pulling out my fucking hair as I was watching this because... These people are just, they're insane. We have insane people running our government. Now, one thing that I liked that I've got to give Nancy Pelosi credit for is when she just casually dropped in the Trump shutdown. I thought that that was funny because it definitely got Donald Trump's attention. It seemed as if it caught him off guard. Now, what was interesting to me is that Nancy Pelosi, you know, she kept dropping hints that she really didn't feel comfortable with the fact that this was being broadcasted in front of cameras. Now, I'm glad that it was taking place in front of cameras because this doesn't allow Democrats to hide all of the concessions they would inevitably be giving to Donald Trump. Because she said, she admitted here, that border security is important. Uh, I'm sorry, Nancy, but no, border security is not important. And if you think it is important, then what you should do on behalf of the people that voted for your party is say, well, look, Sure, this may be important, but there are other issues of a greater salience that we should tend to first that require funding. But she didn't do that. She already conceded by saying, yeah, border security is important. And Donald Trump kind of proved inadvertently that border security really isn't that important because he talked about, oh, they just found 10 terrorists trying to sneak into the country. Well, if we don't have a wall and the border police were able to capture 10 terrorists without a wall, doesn't that kind of demonstrate how a wall isn't actually important? If we're able to be effective at catching criminals without a wall? Now, I don't know what he's referring to. I don't know the terrorists in question, but let's just accept what he's saying is fact. If that were true, then we were able to stop bad people from, from coming in without a wall. So, do you really need a wall? Is the urgency actually necessary for this particular issue? Well, of course it is, because this is politics for Donald Trump. It's not about good public policy. It's about politics. Now, in this next clip that I'm about to show you, it got a little bit weirder because Chuck Schumer decided to join in the discussion, and he did his usual tough guy thing where he pointed and he said, Mr. President, I will not back down as he concedes to Donald Trump. The Washington Post today gave you a whole lot of Pinocchios because they say you constantly misstate how much the wall is built, how much of the wall is built, and how much is there. But that's not the point here. We have a disagreement about the wall, Washington whether it's effective or whatever. Not on border security, but on the wall. We do not want to shut down the government. You have called 20 times to shut down the government. You say, I want to shut down the government. We don't. We want to come to an agreement. If we can't come to an agreement, we have solutions that will pass the House and Senate right now and will not shut down the government. And that's what we're urging you to do. Not threaten to shut down the government because you, you let me just finish because you can't get the your last way. Time you shut it down, you yeah, let me say something, Mr. President. You just say my way or we'll shut down the government. We have a proposal that Democrats and Republicans will support to do a CR that will not shut down the government, we urge you to take it. And if it's not good border security, I it won't take it. It is very good border security. And if it's security. not good border security, like border I won't security take it. It's what the Because when you look at these numbers of the effectiveness of our border security, and when you look at the job that we're doing you with our military... You just said it is effective. 
Can I be? Can I tell you something? Yeah, you just said without it's a wall. These are only areas where you have the walls. We want to do where this. you have walls, Chuck. It's effective. We, where you don't have walls, it is not effective. Yeah. Let's call a halt to this. We've come in here as the first branch of government. Article one, the legislative branch. We're coming in in good faith to negotiate with you about how we can keep the government open. We're going to keep it open if we have border security. If we don't have border security, Chuck, we're not going to keep it open. I'm with you. We are going to have border security. And it's the same border. You're bragging about what has been done. We want to do the same thing we did last year, this year. That's our proposal. If it's good then, it's good now, and it won't shut down the government. Chuck, we can build a but much bigger it. section let's, let's with debate, more money. Let's debate, okay. Okay. let's debate in private. Okay? Yeah. Let's debate in private. Devoid, frankly, of fact, and we we can. We need border that. security, and I think we all agree that we need border security. Yes, yes. we right? do. Good. We do. See, we get along. So. It's very clear that Chuck Schumer is adamant about the fact that he doesn't want the government to shut down. And Trump kind of took a dig that was kind of true. He said, uh, the last time the government was shut down, you got killed. Yeah, sorry, Chuck, but Trump's kind of right about that. You caved within two and a half days, and that was an absolute embarrassment. You had Trump backed into a quarter and could have actually protected dreamers, but you tucked your tail between your legs and you caved. Now... I kind of get, for argument's sake, where Chuck Schumer is coming from with regard to his frustration with Trump, because he's saying, look, Mr. President, we are proposing the same amount of funding for border security that we gave you last year, which you literally just bragged about and said is effective. So why won't you take that? Why is that not effective? And I get where Chuck Schumer is coming from. The problem is that you're still conceding to Donald Trump and giving him what he wants and proposing anything. And even if Chuck Schumer may be putting forth a cogent argument here, he's still strategically illiterate because if the government shuts down, knowing how unpopular government shutdowns generally are, well, it wouldn't necessarily hurt Democrats and it might actually help them. So knowing that Trump is the one culpable for another shutdown, that would benefit Democrats, but Schumer is offering funding for increased border security, and even if Donald Trump isn't necessarily satisfied with that, he still benefits from getting that, because you're giving him what he wants. Offer him zero dollars, and if he shuts down the government, he shuts down the government, and not only does he get blamed for that, but then we also have the added benefit of not wasting any money on something that's completely unnecessary. But nonetheless, Schumer still was pointing at him and pretending to be tough and posturing, but, I mean, you're not that strong if you are <laughs> conceding to him. You're offering funding for border security. Offer him nothing. Make him meet you halfway on a different policy. Because notice how it's always Democrats who have to meet Republicans halfway. Make him meet you halfway on any other issue. Minimum wage. Medicare for all. And notice how Chuck Schumer was also clearly uncomfortable about the fact that the press was there. Because again, they like to hide all of the sleaziness that goes on. They like to hide the fact that they're actually pushovers behind the scenes. And he actually would probably offer Donald Trump everything he wanted if the ca cameras weren't there. But in this next clip that I'm going to show you, they just start arguing about random shit. The entire conversation just evolves into insanity. And towards the end of this clip, Donald Trump is going to offer Chuck Schumer a really huge gift, and Chuck is basically going to refuse to take it, still. Just that is a political promise. Border security is a way to effectively 
honor our responsibility. And the experts say you can do border security without a wall, which is wasteful and doesn't solve the problem. It, it okay. totally solves but the I problem. Don't want to take this. I, this and it's very important. This has spiraled downward when we came at a place to say, how do we meet the needs of American people who have needs? The, the economy has, it's, uh, people are losing their jobs, the market's in a mood. Our members are already Well, we have the lowest unemployment that we've had in 50 years. 60 people of, of the Republican Party have lost it, are losing their offices now because of the transition. They're, people are not at the morale. And we've gained in the Senate. A, Nancy, the we've gained in the Senate. Excuse me, did we win the Senate? We won the Senate. When the president brags that he won North Dakota and Indiana, he's in real trouble. When I, oh, I did. Let me say this. We did win North Dakota This is and the India. most unfortunate thing. We came in here in good faith, uh, and, and, and we're entering into a, a, this kind of a, a discussion in the public view. But it's not bad, but, Nancy. Has, no, uh, no, it's called it's, transparency. I, I know. It's not transparency when we're not stipulating to a set of facts and when we want to have a debate with you about saying we confront some of those facts. Without you know what? We need border security. That's what we're going to be talking about, border security. If we don't have border security, we'll shut down the government. This country needs border security. The wall is a part of border security. Let's have a talk. We're going to get the wall built, and we've done a lot of wall already. Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting as a leader of the House Democrats who just won a big victory. Elections but have me, consequences, Mr. Just, President. Let me just say. That's right. And that's why the country this. is doing so well. What the President is representing in terms of his cards over there are not factual. We have to have an evidence-based conversation about what does work, what money has been spent, and how effective it is. This isn't about, this is about the security of our country to take an oath to protect and defend. And we don't want to have that mischaracterized by anyone. The one thing I think we can agree on is we shouldn't shut down the government over a dispute. And you want to shut it down. I, no, you keep no, talking no, no, about no. it. The last time, Chuck, you shut it down. No, no, no. And then you opened it up times, very quickly. And 20 times. I don't want to do what you did. 20 but, times Chuck, you have called for, I will shut down the government if I don't get my wool. None of us have you said You want to know something? You've said okay, it. Okay, you want to put that you on You've said it. I'll take it. Okay, okay, good. You know what I'll say? Yes. If we don't get what we want, one way or the other, whether it's through you, through a military, through anything you want to call, I will shut down the government. Okay, Absolutely. fair enough. And we I am disagree. proud, and I'll we tell you disagree. what, I am proud to shut down the government for border security, Chuck, because the people of this country don't want criminals and people that have lots of problems and drugs pouring into our country. So I will take the mantle. I will be the one to shut it down. I'm not going to blame you for it. The last time you shut it down, it didn't work. I will take the mantle Good. of shutting down. And I'm going to shut it down for border But we security. believe you shouldn't okay. shut it down. So <laughs> there are so many things that went on that I don't even know how to address them. But basically, Donald Trump just gave Chuck Schumer a huge gift. He said, I will shut down the government and personally take blame for it. There are cameras all around that are witnessing me saying this, I will shut down the government and take blame for it if you don't give me what I want. But what does Chuck Schumer do? Like the idiot that he is? Well, since he is committed to this position of I want to avoid a government shutdown, he's like, well, Mr. President, I think we should not shut down the government and I am committed to doing what the American people want. Chuck, you're watching him headed straight towards a brick wall and he's about to fucking faceplant and what you're doing rather than just letting him fall on his face 
is offering to catch him. What is wrong with you? This is a win-win. Don't give him any money for the border wall or border security. Let him close down the government and then get blamed for closing down the government ahead of 2020. And then you get to gloat and say, look, this is a president that acts like a toddler and throws temper tantrums and shut down the government because he didn't get what he wants. But instead, you're offering to help Trump in a roundabout way by trying to convince him that shutting down a government is not in his best interests, even if he's clearly going to get blamed for it, like the last time. Now, look, I'm not inherently in favor of shutting down the government. I don't necessarily support government shutdowns, generally speaking. But when you're trying to do these types of negotiations and you are dealing with an authoritarian strongman, sometimes you've just got to step back and let him faceplant. But Democrats are incapable of dealing with Republicans and specifically Donald Trump's tactics. And it's just absolutely absurd. Another thing that irritated me about Chuck Schumer is that he kept interrupting Nancy Pelosi when he didn't have any good points to make. Like Nancy Pelosi, I think, probably was making better points. Not that anyone came out on top of this exchange, but he kept interrupting her. But Chuck, Shut up! You're just interjecting with platitudes that are meaningless. So, this was just a really weird exchange. I'm very glad that it happened because it was thoroughly entertaining, but nonetheless, it kind of is just a microcosm of the broader issue with Washington, D.C. That everyone is batshit fucking insane, yet they simultaneously think that they are serious people when they are the opposite of serious people. And the president is basically a toddler. Progressives have done a lot in this country to move the Overton window back to the left with regard to the healthcare discussion. And this is all in part thanks to Bernie Sanders just being a relentless advocate for Medicare for all. Now, we've won this discussion, I think. We've monopolized political discourse when it comes to this issue. And now the American people are on our side. 70% of Americans overall back a Medicare for all system, and that includes 52% of Republicans. So needless to say, I think we've won this battle. So now all that is needed is for Democrats to retake control of government and then give us what we want. Well, it's not that easy because now that Democrats will be retaking control of the House, there's this new push by healthcare lobbyists teaming up with corporate Democrats to push back against any progress when it comes to this issue at all. They don't want Medicare for all, and they don't even want to allow more people to buy into Medicare. So they're gearing up for an all-out war with progressives on this issue. Now, for more on this, we go to Adam Kanserin of Politico, who reports deep-pocketed hospital insurance and other lobbies are plotting to crush progressives' hopes of expanding the government's role in healthcare once they take control of the House. The private sector interests, backed in some cases by key Obama administration and Hillary Clinton campaign alumni, are now focused on beating back another prospective healthcare overhaul, including plans that 
would allow people under 65 to buy into Medicare. This sets up a potentially brutal battle between establishment Democrats who want to preserve Obamacare and a new wave of progressive House Democrats who ran on single-payer health care. We know the insurance companies and the pharma companies are all putting tens of millions of dollars into trying to defeat us, said Representative Pramila Jayapal, who co-chairs the Medicare for All Congressional Caucus, which I take as a badge of honor that they're so concerned about a good policy that they're going to put so much money into trying to defeat it. The rift could come into full view in the opening weeks of the new Congress as the party, long bound by a need to defend the Affordable Care Act, tries to embrace a new healthcare vision it can carry into the 2020 presidential campaign. House Democratic leaders already are emphasizing the need to align behind a more pragmatic agenda focused on largely shoring up Obamacare without peering too far into the future. We want to continue promoting the idea of accessibility and improving the Affordable Care Act, said incoming Ways and Means Committee Chairman Richard Neal. That should be the primary goal that we have. It's a sentiment shared by the major lobbies that fought alongside Democrats against Obamacare repeal and now want to reap the benefits. These interest groups contend that after a decade of upheaval in healthcare, the public would prefer simple fixes that strengthen the ACA over a headlong rush into another dramatic overhaul of the system. Well, guess what? Those interest groups are dead wrong. The ACA was not a dramatic overhaul. That was incrementalism. It was by definition incrementalism. The boldest component of the Affordable Care Act, which was a public option, was not adopted. In fact, it was abandoned early on. So we already got your bullshit incrementalist approach, and it simply wasn't enough. So when they say, these interest groups specifically say that the public would prefer simple fixes, no, you don't get to just say what we prefer. Look at the fucking public opinion polls. 70% of Americans support Medicare for all. It is very clear, and that's just looking at polls. When you actually look at the grassroots enthusiasm behind this bill, I mean, I've never seen this much momentum for a single-payer healthcare system before. So you don't get to just say, oh, it, this is what the American people want. They want a simple fix. No, we want... A drastic change because our healthcare system is complete and utter garbage. And trying to convince us that our healthcare system only needs simple fixes shows how out of touch you are because people in this country every single year die or go bankrupt because they don't have health insurance. And when I talk about that, I'm leaving out the people who end up not getting the treatment that they need if they have insurance but their healthcare provider won't cover a particular procedure that they need, or they need to see a specific specialist or a doctor, but that individual is not in their network, so they can't see it and get the treatment that would otherwise be necessary. So our healthcare system is fundamentally broken, and it needs to be reformed from top to bottom. The only feasible way of fixing our broken healthcare system is Medicare for all. Americans know this, and trying to convince lawmakers that we don't want Medicare for all and we want simple fixes, well, that's just flat out wrong. It's propaganda. It's corporate propaganda. It is the cries that we're hearing from dinosaurs 
with dinosaurs being the health industry, uh, the healthcare industry, the health insurance industry, knowing that they're going to go extinct. They see the asteroid coming and now they're scrambling because they don't know what to do. So they're running to Democratic Party lawmakers and saying, oh, trust me, you don't want to do Medicare for all. Trust me. It's not that I'm trying to protect our profits. It's that the American people don't actually want Medicare for all. Well, that's just bullshit. All you have to do to dispute that theory and really just debunk it flat out is talk to someone. Now, lobbyists are going to say this. That's not necessarily something that's surprising to me. What is infuriating to me is the individuals from the Democratic Party establishment that came from the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton campaign that are fighting alongside these insurance lobbyists. I mean, how disgusting is that? You're teaming up with the healthcare industry and presumably taking their money, which I think is blood money, and you're trying to fight against something that the American people want and the overwhelming majority of your own party want. I mean, how despicable of a human being do you have to be to do something like that? But look, the overall point of this article is that the establishment wants to crush progressives. That's not going to happen. They're not just going to crush progressives and we're going to shut up. This is going to be an all-out war because progressives are ready. We've been going to war with the Democratic Party establishment for the last couple of years. And if you think we're going to back down now, well, you've got another thing coming. So you need to acknowledge that if you choose to align with health industry lobbyists and healthcare professionals over the American people, you will end your career. We will expose you. We will demonstrate the link between you and the health industry. We will shine a light on the contributions you're taking, and it's going to be an all-out war. So if you truly want to wage this war against progressives, then gear the fuck up because we're not backing down. So buckle up because this is going to be a battle. But you're going to lose because we have an advantage that we didn't have a couple of years ago when we wouldn't even back down then. Now we have the American people on our side. So we have no reason to back down and you have every reason to back down with the exception of that profit margin for your CEOs. But that's not good enough. We're fighting a fight that's moral. And like every moral fight throughout history, be it the women's suffrage movement or the civil rights movement or the gay rights movement, it's a hard-fought battle. But guess what? We're prepared for that because this is a battle that's worthwhile. And it's not just healthcare. We're going to have to battle when it comes to climate change. We're going to have to battle on a plethora of issues because we are forced to work with centrist, neoliberal, pro-corporate Democrats because we live in a two-party system where the only other alternative is... Republican Party extremists, but they're going to acquiesce and do what we want because we're done doing things their way because we've already tried that and it hasn't worked out too well. So for those of you who have followed this channel now for more than a year, you know that we spent most of 2017 fighting this individual here. His name is Ruben Kiwin. He is the representative in the 4th Congressional District of the state of Nevada. And there was a town hall that I reported on on this podcast on Mother's Day weekend of 2017. And Amy Valela, you all know her as a congressional candidate, showed up to that town hall. This was before she was a politician and was just an activist. And she asked him to co-sponsor H.R. 676, which is the Medicare for All bill. Now, he said no 
after she told her story about how her daughter died because we don't have a Medicare for All system, essentially. She was refusing to allow her daughter, Shalin, and her story to not get out. So she did what any grieving mother would do. Go to her congressperson and advocate for her daughter and make sure that what happened to her and her daughter never happens to anyone else. And she pleaded with Ruben Kiwin to co-sponsor HR 676 and he told her no. Now, what happened next was really remarkable because she then chose to primary him, run against him in that district, and she teamed up with Justice Democrats and brand new Congress, and Amy announced her campaign on The Humanist Report because a lot of my viewers were following this story so closely. And look, we've been putting a lot of pressure on Kiwin ever since that town hall. We sent so many calls to his DC and Nevada offices that we filled up his voicemail inboxes. I mean, he knew that he outraged thousands of progressives across the country by having the audacity to say no to Medicare for All after a mother just explained how important it is to him. Now, what ended up happening was there was a scandal. There were sexual misconduct, specifically sexual harassment allegations, I believe, that surfaced against Ruben Kiwin, and then he decided to not seek re-election. And this is all something that happened during the campaign. And at that point, Amy Valela became the de facto presumptive nominee because she was the only one in the race and she was certainly the most progressive. However, the establishment had other plans. Someone named Stephen Horsford, who represented the 4th Congressional District before Reuben Kiwin and lost after one term, became a lobbyist. He flew to D.C., became a lobbyist, and then he came back to run for his old seat again, and the establishment essentially got behind Stephen Horsford. And he won. He beat Amy Valela. So now we're at a point where Ruben Kiwin is on his way out, Stephen Horsford is on his way in, and he is no more likely to support Medicare for All than Ruben Kiwin but we're going to get some closure to a chapter in a story that has been absolutely crazy. I don't know how else to describe it. Because what happened today on the House floor showed that progressives are powerful. We are a force because we absolutely can change people's hearts and minds. Even the coldest people, the se seemingly the coldest people in the country can be moved by our pleas for Medicare for All. And this is what happened today on the House floor. Unacceptable that in one of the richest and most powerful countries in the world, a tragedy like this can still occur. Everyone in the United States of America should have access to equality and affordable health insurance. Access to health care is a basic human right, and no one should ever be denied Medicare, Medicare because of their inability to pay. This is why, Mr. Speaker, I recently pledged my support to the Medicare for All Act, which provides universal coverage to all those living in the United States of America. My deepest condolences go out to the Vilela family. And Shalin, this one's for you. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. So not only did Ruben Kiwin publicly endorse Medicare for All and make a passionate defense for why we need Medicare for All, he did a tribute to Shalin. That was so 
powerful because it's clear he had a change of heart. What Amy Valela told him, the story she shared about her daughter, Shalin, that day, it did resonate with him. Little did we know, it actually did strike a chord with him. The question, obviously, is why did you wait so long? Why did you not co-sponsor HR 676 the day after she shared her story with you? Why do it now when you're on your way out and it really doesn't make that big of a difference? Well, Ruben Kiwan actually met up with Amy Valela and he explained that he was kind of with her all along. He just wasn't able to act or was discouraged from acting because there are very powerful forces in DC that tried to stop him. Hey everybody, welcome Hi. to Washington DC. We're so happy to share your story. Your daughter's story. Oh thank you. It's been a long journey. Really appreciate it. I look first of all I just want to say this is coming from the heart. You know, I am not running for re-election. Uh, this is something that I wanted to do. Uh, from the time that you and I, uh, you know, had our uh, town hall meeting, uh, you shared your story. Uh, something that I felt it was the right thing to do in part, um, and I think this is the right thing to do. You know, I wanted to do it. Talk to my chief of staff and uh, my team, and I said, "Look, I want to do this. I've been wanting to sign up to Medicare for all for a long time." And because we had Washington D.C. consultants saying, "No, this is just, this doesn't look good for your re-election." You know, they were pushing back, but I believe this is the right thing to do. This is not politics. You know, I just, you know, your story touched me. Your daughter's story touched me. Uh, just reading, you know, about your daughter in the last few days honestly really touched me. So I just want to thank you for allowing me to do this. I appreciate it. Yeah, so everyone else that's losing people every year. Yeah. Appreciate it. Absolutely. It's thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm going to give you Absolutely. <laughs> Now, the audio wasn't the best, but in case you couldn't make out what he was saying, he said, I've been wanting to sign on to Medicare for all for a long time. But, quote, we had Washington, D.C. consultants saying this doesn't look good for your re-election who are pushing back. In other words, we may have more allies in Congress than we think, but there are powerful forces, consultants, lobbyists, who are trying to discourage them from doing the right thing. Now, does Ruben get a pass because he was convinced that signing on to Medicare for All would hurt his re-election campaign? No, not really, because you've got to have the courage to do what's right in spite of whatever negative repercussions might come your way. You might sign on to Medicare for All and then have lobbyists or healthcare industry professionals the CEO specifically, bankroll your opponent in the next election. But guess what? You're still doing something that's worthwhile because you're standing up for what's right. You're, you're advocating for a policy that would literally save thousands of lives every single year. So he doesn't get a pass for that, but he is kind of giving us this parting gift because he knows we were upset with him. He knows he didn't do the right thing, but he's giving us a gift and that gift is information that, hey, there's a lot of people in Congress that probably want to support Medicare for All, but their consultants are telling them, don't do this if you want to keep your job. And maybe it's not even that 
they are choosing to not back Medicare for all because they're worried about losing their re-election because they're self-interested, even though I'm sure that plays a part in it. Maybe they're just thinking, look, I care about issues X, Y, and Z, and I just want to make sure I keep my job so I can fight for these issues. Maybe it's not even nefarious. But for whatever reason, people in D.C. are influencing Democrats to back down from Medicare for All, to ignore the will of their constituents when we are begging and pleading with them for Medicare for All. So in revealing this to us, Ruben is kind of giving us a really important gift here. And that gift is information. He's saying, this is kind of what's at stake. In other words, you know how to craft your argument. What's going to speak to them, in addition to the stories, because Shillin's story clearly resonated with him, what's going to speak to them is something that counters what they've been told by the consultant class in Washington, D.C. And I want to go an extra step here and give credit where it's due to Ruben here because what he's saying here, think about what that means for his career prospects. He's a one-term representative and his only hope at this point of being wealthy is to do what Stephen Horsford did and become a lobbyist. But by revealing this information to us, what lobbying firm is going to hire him? He's kind of doing something that bucks the narrative, that bucks DC orthodoxy. You're not supposed to reveal this information. I mean, we're in a time where people are really blowing the lid off of all of the bullshit that goes on in DC. You have Ocasio-Cortez tweeting about how Goldman Sachs is talking to freshman members of Congress and basically indoctrinating them into neoliberal corporatism. And now we have Ruben Kewen saying, look, for those of us that wanted to back Medicare for all, we were told not to do that. They're trying to pin us down and tie our hands so we don't do that. And that's really a damn shame. But in terms of Ruben Kewen signing on to Medicare for all, even though it's, I mean, it serves nothing more than symbolism at this point, right? He's just signaling to us that he's with us, even though that doesn't necessarily mean much now since he's leaving. It's still really important, and I do appreciate the gesture here because he chose ultimately to not only respond finally in the way that we wanted him to respond, but he decided to pay tribute to Shalin, which was really, really important. It, it touched me when I saw... Um, him say her name. So, even if it didn't go the way we expected it to, even if what happened in um, Congressional District 4 in Nevada didn't turn out the way we had hoped, at the end of the day, we still kind of won. Because we put pressure on a corporate Democrat who didn't support Medicare for All, and even if he didn't do what we wanted him to, because of nefarious forces in D.C., what we said still resonated with him. And that in and of itself is important, and it shows just how powerful progressives are. What Ruben is doing is he's kind of paving the way for us to put pressure on Stephen Horsford, because we already know he's not going to co-sponsor H.R. 676. I would be shocked if he did. But he's probably not going to support Medicare for All. So, what Ruben just did is give us this information that if Stephen Horsford doesn't back Medicare for All, it's because he lacks the political courage to do so. It's because there are consultants that the Democratic Party establishment hires to try to convince them to not endorse Medicare for All. 
But the good news is that there's over 100 Democrats in the House that co-sponsored H.R. 676. It's just a matter of getting those last holdouts to come to our side. And there's going to be a war within the Democratic Party, a gigantic intra-party battle between progressives and corporate Democrats when it comes to Medicare for All. But we will not back down. I don't think it's very controversial to say that as DNC chairman, Tom Perez has been a complete and utter disaster. Because if you are going to run the DNC, a corrupt organization from top to bottom, I think that especially after what happened in 2016, one of your number one goals should be to win back the trust of progressives. Has he been successful at doing that? Absolutely not. And it's because he's not really even trying. I mean, back in 2017, what did he do? He purged progressives from high-ranking positions within the DNC in order to replace them with establishment loyalists who also happened to endorse him when he was running to be the DNC chairman over Keith Ellison. So, I mean, he has repeatedly shunned progressives. He's done things to make himself suspect, like endorsing Cynthia Nixon over Andrew Cuomo, when as DNC chairman, I mean, you have a vested interest in remaining neutral because that helps you maintain your legitimacy. Now, he also reversed the DNC's recently adopted ban on fossil fuel contributions. So time after time, Tom Perez has shown that He's not serious about winning back progressives. In fact, he doesn't really care about that at all. He just wants to maintain the status quo. And really, the only positive news to come out of the DNC since he's been chairman has been that they voted to adopt the DNC's unity reform recommendations, and they substantially reduced the influence superdelegates will have going forward on presidential nominating processes. So that's important. But what else is he doing? What has he specifically done? Because that's what the DNC Unity Reform Commission recommended. And then the aggregate DNC voted to adopt those changes. But as chairman, what has he done to help build up the DNC's legitimacy and rebuild trust that the organization lost among progressives after 2016. Well, he actually is finally doing something that is a step in the right direction. Now, it's a small step, but it's a step in the right direction nonetheless. And as Daniel Morans of HuffPost reports, the Democratic National Committee issued rules Monday aimed at shoring up trust and its impartiality in the upcoming 2020 presidential nominating contest. The DNC plans to bar employees and officers from publicly endorsing any presidential candidates throughout what is expected to be a crowded intra-party competition for the job of taking on President Donald Trump. The rules would prohibit DNC staffers and officers from financial contributions to particular candidates, attendance of events that could suggest partiality, public statements or social media posts espousing presidential preferences, internal communications expressing views for or against Democratic candidates, and even gestures like displaying bumper stickers or lawn signs from individual campaigns. The DNC is committed to making sure that our 2020 nominating process is fair
fair and transparent, said its chairman, Tom Perez. These new policies will help ensure that there is no perception of partiality by the DNC during the campaign for the Democratic nomination. DNC CEO Seema Nanda sent a memorandum to DNC staff laying out the new guidelines on Monday afternoon. Patrice Taylor, the DNC's director of party affairs and delegate selection, sent a similar set of instructions to DNC officers. The rules aim to avoid a repeat of the 2016 presidential primaries when supporters of Senator Bernie Sanders were critical of the DNC for appearing to favor Hillary Clinton. Now, let's just be clear here. We weren't critical of the DNC because they, quote, appeared to favor Hillary Clinton. We were critical of the DNC because they did favor Hillary Clinton, not just vocally, but in practice, in allowing Hillary Clinton to take control of the DNC, their fundraising operation, and controlling the press releases that they release. That's not just the uh, perception of bias and favoritism. It's outright <laughs> allowing her to control the DNC. It's, it's a rigged process. It's inherently flawed and biased. So they're kind of misrepresenting the story here by saying, oh, well, you know, we just didn't like that. It appeared as if there was some type of favoritism. No, there was favoritism. You can say it. It's undisputable. And in fact, if you don't admit to it, then I can't take you seriously. So look, what they're doing here is very, very important. But here's the thing. I don't necessarily care so much about their rules. I care that their actions will align with these rules. Because look, the DNC charter mandates that the DNC chair remain neutral in the primary process. But that didn't stop Debbie Wasserman Schultz from doing everything she could to put her finger on the scale. So even if it's fundamentally important to enact rules like this, to stop members of the DNC from doing things that make it seem as if they are biased, what we need is for you to actually follow through and follow these rules and make sure that there are repercussions for DNC members that violate their promise to remain impartial during the Democratic Party primary. Because here's the thing. If you believe in democracy, then you need to put that to the test and allow voters to have their say, let them vote. We don't need you to tip the scales in favor of one candidate over another. Just let it play out. And if your candidate loses, then your candidate loses. Okay? We don't need you to rig the process. Now, is it true that the DNC doing this doesn't necessarily stop the establishment the aggregate establishment, from still playing dirty? Well, no, because look at what the Californian Democratic Party did. They moved up their primary because they felt as if having an earlier primary in their state would favor someone like Kamala Harris. Now, they didn't overtly say this, but we know that that's what they're doing. Because Kamala Harris, she will likely, overwhelmingly likely, will be running for president in 2020, and she's from the state of California, where you can pick up a lot of pledged delegates if you win that state. So by moving their primary up, that benefits her. So I don't necessarily think that this will negate from any other dirty shenanigans and tricks that the party establishment is going to play, you know, when it comes to state parties. But by and large, 
this still is important coming from the head of the Democratic Party. I mean, I think that this is really important and it shows that he at least acknowledges the importance of building up trust. But don't just talk, act. We're still going to be watching. We're still going to be very, very skeptical of everything that you try to do because it's not just that you lost trust among progressives. You absolutely took that trust stepped on it, took a dump on it, and then wiped your ass with it. That's what you guys did in 2016. So it's going to take a lot to rebuild this trust after what you guys did just two years ago was absolutely not just immoral, but one of the most unethical things I think that the Democratic Party has ever done. So it's going to take a lot, but actually put this into practice and don't just say it. Nonetheless, I will give credit where it's due because I do think this is a step in the right direction. As I said earlier, it's a small step in the right direction, but it's still a step in the right direction. Nonetheless, let's just hope that they honor this new policy. As you all know, the deadline for Congress to restore net neutrality using the Congressional Review Act was initially December 10th, but thanks to dysfunction in Washington, D.C., it has since been extended to December 21st, thankfully, because since Democrats and Republicans haven't agreed on a bill to uh, fund the government, well, that dysfunction kind of worked out in our favor for the first time in a while, and now we have more time to get to the 218 signatures needed to actually nullify the FCC's 2017 repeal of net neutrality. Now, not too long ago, I told you about how ISP-funded Democrats were conspicuously ghosting their constituents on this particular issue because it's clear that Americans want net neutrality, but these 18 Democrats have refused to sign on to the CRA, and one of them is newly elected Democratic Representative Mary Gay Scanlon from Pennsylvania's 7th Congressional District, and she actually did decide to respond to her constituents after receiving an influx of phone calls, all of which urging her to sign on to the CRA. And she released a video to Facebook Live letting them know that she heard their concerns, she, you know, took all their phone calls, and after weighing out what they want her to do, it's a no. She's not going to sign on to the CRA. Now, in this video that I'm about to show you, the reasoning that she gives is pretty suspect, and she actually... I'm assuming lied to her constituents because she told them something that is just factually incorrect. I want to thank the constituents who've been calling um, my office asking me to sign on to the CRA discharge petition to protect net neutrality. One of my goals in Congress is to be transparent and accessible, so I wanted to let you know, first of all, that we've heard your messages, and I've considered all of them, and I wanted to explain to you my decision on the petition. I've decided not to sign the petition because a discharge petition is an arcane congressional maneuver. It requires 218 signatures to be successful. And there's no way that those signatures will exist by tonight, which is the deadline. What there isn't a deadline on is good legislation to protect net neutrality, and I look forward to working on that. You know, we've already started reviewing legislation, and I've signed on to several bills involving um, public schools, involving gun violence prevention, immigration reform, voting rights, and health care. 
So this is a conversation that I look forward to continuing. Please reach out to us. Please call the office. Please email. Send us letters. We even have a fax machine around here somewhere. And I look forward to hearing from you. Oh, and you will. So we are absolutely going to call her. But before we call her office, I do want to give you some additional information because out of all of the 18 Democrats who are refusing to sign on to the CRA, she is a case that is particularly egregious according to Gizmodo's Del Cameron, and he reports activists marked Representative Mary Gay Scanlon, a Democrat of Pennsylvania, who was sworn in less than a month ago as a particularly egregious case. In a Facebook video this week, Scanlon acknowledged having received numerous calls from constituents, but claimed she was refusing to sign on to the CRA because it is, she said, an arcane congressional maneuver. The Congressional Review Act was enacted in 1996. Scanlon, whose campaign's second largest contributor, was Comcast and whose office has dodged inquiries from reporters, also claimed there was no way the required number of signatures would be collected before the December 10th deadline, failing to inform the some 3,000 Facebook viewers that the deadline has actually been extended. It's unclear whether Scanlon was misinformed. Scanlon, whose campaign issue page featured a now-deleted section promoting net neutrality also echoed a common telecom industry talking point that net neutrality should only be addressed through congressional legislation, even though the FCC's ability to enact administrative law stems entirely from legislation passed by Congress. This argument is often used by Republican lawmakers and net neutrality opponents when attempting to derail congressional efforts to overturn the FCC's decision. Now, the reason why opponents to net neutrality often like to recite this point about, oh, well, you know, I support net neutrality. We just need to pursue a legislative fix. The reason why they say that is because look at what happened in California. I mean, they have a supermajority in that state. Democrats hold a supermajority. And how many attempts were there to water down that bill? Having a bill, you just automatically subject it to scrutiny from lobbyists, from the telecom industry, and they know that they can get in the ear of lawmakers and water it down. They've actually proposed shell net neutrality bills that are basically written by telecom lobbyists. I've covered these stories on my channel before. So it's nothing more than a red herring. They want you to think they're on your side because the issue is overwhelmingly popular. Most Americans want net neutrality, but in actuality, they are reciting an industry talking point. Now, as the article states here, she took money from Comcast. They're her second largest contributor. Now, how much money did she take? Well, specifically, she received $10,000 from Comcast in PAC money. Now, that may not necessarily seem like that much given how much money is swirling around in DC, but for a first term representative, this is actually quite a bit of money. So we need to go through all of the reasons why she's made it very clear that she's against the people here. First of all, she lied to her constituents about the CRA deadline. Now, I'm assuming she lied. Maybe she was just misinformed. That's entirely possible. But if you are a member of Congress, I mean, it's incumbent on you to know about the deadlines for important votes like this. So I just, I just don't think that she's that ignorant. I don't. Second of all, she deleted references to net neutrality off of her website. I actually went to her website and the page was just presumably deleted because it says not found. She took net neutrality 
off of the issues page. I mean, how brazen is that? Additionally, she called the CRA arcane. Again, either she's lying or misinformed at this point. I don't know which one is worse. And, of course, the worst is that she took $10,000 in pack money from Comcast. So, she said she wants to hear from us, so she's going to hear from us. Her DC office is 202-225-2011, and her office number for Springfield is 610-690-7323. Now, according to the article, her office is not taking calls. We're going to try that anyway. If not, we will tweet to her. Her Twitter handle is at MaryGayScanlon. So I'm going to try her DC office and see if um, I have any luck with that. So that's 202-225-2011. Thank you for calling the office of Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon. I am sorry that we cannot take your call right now. Please leave your didn't name even and ring. contact information in a detailed message, and someone from our office will get back to you shortly. For more information about how to contact our office and the services that we provide, please visit our website at scanlon.house.gov. We look forward to speaking to you soon. Record your message after the tone. When you've finished, you can hang up or press 1 for more options. Hello, Representative Mary Gay Scanlon. I just wanted to call and urge you to actually listen to your constituents and sign on to the CRA resolution to restore net neutrality because you recently made a Facebook video where you claimed that the deadline had passed. But being a member of Congress, you would know that the deadline actually has been extended to December 21st. So either you lied to your constituents or you're just misinformed and even if it's the case that you're right and there's no way we can get to the required 218 signatures, well, you still need to prove which side you're on. Are you on the side of the internet service providers or your constituents? Because you've done things that are suspect. First of all, since you were elected, you deleted references to net neutrality from your website. And most importantly, you took $10,000 from PAC money impact money from Comcast, to be exact. Now, for a first-term representative, that is very suspicious. That's a lot of money. So maybe we should either primary you or have the House Ethics Committee look into you because maybe there's some type of quid pro quo there. Because, I mean, if you're taking that much money from Comcast and then doing their bidding in a very shameless way, maybe it's the case that something is going on. Maybe there's an underlying quid pro quo. But all you have to do is sign on to the CRA and prove to us that you're on our side. But if you choose to not do that, you're shunning the will of not just your constituents, but the American people who overwhelmingly support net neutrality. So do the right thing or be on the wrong side of history and be against the activists who have been pushing for net neutrality now for a year. Do the right thing. And also, maybe think about returning that $10,000 you took from Comcast, because that money is corrupting, and it's clearly already had a corrosive influence on you. God damn it. If you are satisfied with your recording, press 1. To review it, press 2. To delete and re-record your message, press 3. That's fine. To send your message now, press 1. To mark it, message sent. Okay. Disconnect. Press 1 to enter another number. Please call again. Thank you. Okay, so be sure that after you send her the message, 
you press one to send because I don't know if there's going to be any shenanigans where if you just hang up, um, the message won't be sent. But um, that was a little bit long, but I think she she got the point. <laughs> and I knew that I was going to get cut off soon, but I just tried to squeeze in as much as I possibly could. But look, this is completely unacceptable. I mean, these are people who are expected to do the right thing. If you're in the Democratic Party, there's democracy in the name of the party you subscribe to that you're a member of. So do democracy. Your constituents have clearly been calling you. I mean, you acknowledged it. Listen to them. Sign on to the CRA and don't just sign on to the CRA and wash your hands. Actually encourage your colleagues to do the right thing and also sign on to the CRA because as Democrats, we're supposed to be relying on you. So actually fight for us and take a stand for net neutrality. So give her a call and reach out. I already tweeted to her. We just, we have to make sure that she knows because she's a newly elected member of Congress that she, if she wants to do the bidding of Comcast, then she's going to have a tough time because constituents will continuously put pressure on her so long as she is beholden to Comcast. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the episode and special shout out to all of our iTunes and SoundCloud listeners. Uh, as usual, before we go, I want to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors for helping the show to not just survive, but thrive. You guys are absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. I will see you next week for our last episode of the year. And as you could have imagined, it's going to be a pretty large episode. So take care. I'm Mike Figueredo. This is the Humanist Report. Have a great day.